Hey everybody, how's it going? So the other day I got an email, a positive email this time, uh, from a new listener and his name's Jay. And he said, just subscribe to your show email list and I'm interested in getting caught up on your podcast. I'm 53 years old and today is officially my official retirement date. So, uh, which is pretty cool. Good for him. 53 is awesome. And so I wrote him back and I just said, what's the first thing that you're going to do that you couldn't or wouldn't have done when you were working? working. And he said, I told those closest to me that my first two goals were to grow a beard and get a six pack. And I accomplished both of them. And um, I, I thought that was kind of awesome because, you know, I haven't talked about this, but when you retire, you're either going to get fatter or you're going to get thinner. Most people don't just stay the same. Um, and which made me think about COVID. So did you gain weight during COVID or did you lose weight? I know for me, I lost a little just because I had the time, kind of like as if I was retired, uh, pre-tired. And um, I spent a lot of time walking and I lost some weight. And I'm sure that the same thing is going to happen when I retire. But uh, it's something I think about. And it's something I think that we should all think about. We should all have kind of fitness goals as we prepare for retirement and when we go into retirement. And so anyway, Jay, here um, has got himself a six pack and a beard. So um, that's pretty awesome. But um, another thing that he mentioned in his email is that he agreed with me <laughs> with my disagreements with Dave Ramsey. And so, uh, which is always good that people agree with me, but I asked him to kind of elaborate on that a little bit. And he, he wrote back and he said, my main disagreements with Dave, which you've probably mentioned all before, include one, not using credit cards. He says, I've used a Fidelity credit card for five years, 2% cash back on every purchase that goes directly into my brokerage account, and I haven't paid a penny of interest. About $7,500 free money during this time, not to mention the compound interest on the growth and dividends from those stocks I purchased with that money. A no-brainer to me on money I'm already spending. So I love that. I'm, as I've mentioned before, I'm more of a points guy and now I'm getting Bitcoin rewards, but not using credit cards because Dave Ramsey says they're bad uh, can be stupid. And so this guy, Jay, uh, has got $7,500 in rewards, plus, like he says, the growth and dividends from the stocks that he bought. Uh, number two, he said, is not getting a company match. And he says, I'll take that a step further and say, to at least max out your IRA each year regardless. Okay, what he's referring to is that Dave will tell you to wait to contribute to your IRAs or your 401ks until you're completely out of debt. And as I've mentioned in previous episodes, if your company is giving you a match, that's uh, either a 50% or 100% return on your investment instantly. And so to give up on that opportunity because you're trying to hasten the payoff of your debt is stupid. Um, and then uh, Jay goes on to say, the compound interest you're losing out on in your 20s and 30s can't magically be made up for later in life once you're out of debt. And I couldn't agree more. If I would have waited till I was completely 100% out of debt before I started investing, I would, I'd be screwed. Um, so 
Next thing he says, not using debt as leverage on rentals. As you know, as I've mentioned before, Dave Ramsey talks about buying uh, investment houses outright so as not to get into debt. Jay goes on to say, I never got into rentals in part because I listened to Dave. Meanwhile, I've watched folks buy properties with very little down and then get the monthly cash flow and huge gains in property and home values. And uh, yeah, Jay, I, I, I'm with you on that. In fact, I, I, I think I've mentioned that I'm selling one of my houses in Ohio right now. That house is going to basically, it won't have doubled my investment, but in less than four years, it will have close to doubled my investment. And and that's on a 50% down because I bought it in an IRA. And if I would have listened to Dave, I would have missed out on great returns. Um, and then the last thing that Jay says about his disagreements with uh, Dave is number four, cash flowing college. I all I, I actually followed this advice as I used to use the GI Bill and employer assistance to get my degree. I also cash flowed my kids' college. However, a lot of folks don't have this luxury, and with the low interest rates on student loans, I don't begrudge anyone from doing what they feel they need to do to get ahead in life, especially if they have the brains to be doctors or lawyers. You know, I'm kind of with with him too. Nowadays it's it's so hard to cash flow college and uh having a little bit of student debt is kind of part of life, but I also am a firm believer in getting degrees that actually will lead you to some kind of income, uh, not soft humanities degrees. I'm talking about like, uh, you know, engineering, computer stuff, stuff that actually has uh, value in the workplace. So anyway, that was just fun to, to kind of have a back and forth with a listener. And then what I wrote back to him is that, uh, you know, I agree on the student loan thing. But then here's another thing that Dave says is Dave has this uh, debt snowball concept where you pay off your smallest debts first, regardless of the interest rate. And in a lot of cases, I think that's completely backwards because say a listener uh, to Dave has a $20,000 student loan debt at 4%, but yet $25,000 in credit card debt at say 24. Dave will still have them pay off that student loan at 4% first. Okay. While well, that that higher amount in credit cards is racking up a lot more interest in the process. And that's just backwards and silly. So anyway, like I said, it was fun to talk to Jay. And uh, yeah, so feel free to write me anytime if you have questions or if you just want to say hello, uh, go to rogueretirementlounge.com and there's a, there's a email button there. Next up, one of the things that you're going to get from this podcast that you won't find in other retirement or finance shows is an insider's look into the decline and fall of Portland, Oregon. Reason number one is that I happen to live here and I have for over 30 years of my life. But number two is that I see Portland as kind of a uh, kind of a bellwether, I guess, an indicator, canary in the coal mine um, or, well, the West, the whole West Coast is fucked. And I think we can all agree on that. California is seeing crazy outward migration. San Francisco is a drugged out war zone. LA is a third world shithole. And then if you go north to the original dirt hole of the West Coast, Seattle, that place is frightening at best. And anyway, the best of the worst here on the West Coast is Portland. And Portland isn't learning a thing 
from our friends to the north or south. In fact, you know, we're kind of doubling down on policies and reelecting dipshits who are steering this ship straight into the iceberg. So anyway, I so I see Portland as kind of a bellwether indicator of what's going to happen to the rest of the country. Okay. It doesn't take much travel to see the idiocy that's driving policy here in Portland is heading inland, maybe to a town near you. I mean, have, have you been to Boise lately? Okay. Boise, Idaho. I used to love that town. It was liberal enough not to be a complete redneck, like shit kicker city, but conservative enough to at least have some, well, I guess in its simplest terms, laws. But you go there now and all the problems that were limited to your blue state cities to the West are now front and center in the formerly clean and quaint Boise. Um, and now I don't know where you're going to retire. I don't know if you're going to move south to someplace sunny or if you're going to stay put where you are. But Portland might just be a little crystal ball showing what your town or the town you might plan on moving to is going to look like in five or ten years. Anyway, I've got a couple Portland tidbits for you here. Um, so here is just how fucked we are in dealing with crimes. Our puss of a mayor, Ted Wheeler, came out with our 22-23 fiscal year budget. And one of the line items is an additional $1.6 million for reducing crime. Um, now, this is a city where mobs of angry white 20-year-olds can light a police precinct on fire and there'll be no arrests or at least no convictions coming out of it. We're one of the uh, original defund the police petri dishes that saw homicides go from 53 in 2020 to a record of 90 in 2021, almost doubling after we uh, in, or in the process of us defunding the police. So now that the dumb voters in Portland have realized that the police or at least the threat of arrest can actually curb crime, and now that Portlanders feel unsafe in most of the city, we're going to toss a little cash back into crime reduction. But that's not the funny part. Uh, according to the Willamette Week, which is our weekly uh, independent Wednesday newspaper, Ted Wheeler proposes tackling car theft, which spiked in 2021, by, quote, educating Portlanders on the makes and models of the most commonly stolen vehicles and by offering coupons for the club type theft prevention devices to latch onto steering wheels. So... <laughs> Yes, this is this is the truth. Uh, so in 2021, there were over 10,000 reported stolen cars in Portland. So our city's response is to come up with an outreach plan to educate you on the likelihood of your 2011 Civic getting stolen. So you can what? Trade it for a model less likely to attract car thieves? Or you can get a coupon from City Hall for a club steering wheel lock. Problem solved. Uh, I'm not going to go down the wormhole of Portland auto theft stats, but I will point you to an article, again, in our Willamette Week newspaper with a firsthand account of a reporter who had her car stolen. I'll put the link in the show notes. But if you get to the bottom of that article, you're going to see a couple of things. A, you're going to see that according to a Portland police spokesman, most car thefts are connected to drug use, evident from drug paraphernalia often left in cars. Quote, folks who are addicted or living or involved in drug use seem to be a lot of times involved in this, the spokesman says. Quote, usually it's meth and a lot of heroin. And then Kevin Deemer, our district attorney, says that most cases he sees involve someone suffering from addiction. When asked if he thinks car theft is connected to addiction, he says, 
Of course it is. Uh, so further on in this article, you'll find this little note from the reporter who had her car stolen. Uh, and it says on Nextdoor, Nextdoor, that website for neighborhood yentas to complain about coyote sightings and uh, littering. Um, she says on Nextdoor, there's a frequently posted collaborative spreadsheet of 52 chop shops and stolen car dumps across the city. I had visited six of these already. Most were homeless camps or adjacent to one. Wait, so most car thefts are perpetrated by drug addicts, and we have open-air chop shops next to our homeless camps. Huh. Uh, you do the math. Okay, so speaking of the homeless, dig these numbers from the budget. We've got $36 million for the city's pod clusters for homeless people, including $28 million for what they call safe rest villages, none of which have opened yet. So these, uh, these pod villages are basically collections of little tiny homes that are cheap to build, easy to clean, which is good, and on paper look like a great way to put a roof over some heads. But leave it to our dipshits in city and county government to make even this simple solution untenable. So the, the problem with building these, uh, these pod clusters uh, and what they call safe rest villages is that, well, you've got the NIMBY issue pretty much anywhere in town. And hell, I'm all for compassion. But do you want a vacant lot filled with 50 tiny homes housing most likely drug addicted homeless people in your neighborhood? Well, of course you don't. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's because you don't want to get your car stolen. You don't want your house vandalized. You don't want your kids to step on hypodermic needles on the way to school. So um, anyway, a year or so ago, they put together plans to scatter these little, what they call safe rest villages throughout the city. And as I said, none have been completed yet. But the news just came out on Friday that a coalition of neighborhood associations, private school leaders, and homeowners associations in downtown Portland this morning rescinded their support for one of the city's planned tiny pod safe rest villages. Now, why would they do that when they're over a year into the planning process? Well, here's what the coalition demanded. And you tell me if you think this is uh, reasonable. They wanted a screening process for village residents that would weed out tenants with felony convictions for such offenses as sex crimes, arson, and assault. How unreasonable is that? Okay, and the coalition also presented the city with uh, two other demands that were rejected by the city. One was a thousand-foot buffer prohibiting tent camping around the village and the formation of a village advisory group. After all, who is going to govern these villages? Okay, so how unreasonable is it to screen out sex offenders and fire starters and violent criminals from your city-funded homeless village and then have an advisory or oversight group? To me, if that's unreasonable, my brain is short-circuiting, but that is the perfect indicator of the mindset of our city leadership in Portland, Oregon. It's logical and practical not to have sex offenders and violent criminals in your quote-unquote safe rest villages. It says safe right in the name. And I'm not just talking about the safety of the law-abiding, tax-paying people living in the areas surrounding these villages, oh, and by the way, paying for these villages with their tax dollars. I'm also talking about the residents of these villages. I mean, do you want to, if you're homeless, do you want to go to a pod encampment with a bunch of violent criminals and sex offenders? Of course you don't. So, Anyway, I share this with you because local elections matter. We're, you know, we're in this midterm 
and you're probably being inundated with lawn signs and TV spots for House and Senate candidates, but your mayor and your city council, those are the people who are going to usher your city right down the toilet given the opportunity. And this this might sound like QAnon paranoia, but it's but it's pretty true. As Californians flee the mess they've made for themselves, they're coming to your state. And do you think they're suddenly going to change their voting habits? So there's this California Policy Lab, um, which is a research group based out of the University of California. And this is cool because they get real-time data, not your every decade plus uh, census information. They track what they call the University of California Consumer Credit Panel. And that's basically the movements of about 90% of Californian adults with active credit information. And they track this quarterly, and it shows the number of Californians that have moved both within counties and to and from other states. And according to this data, during the pandemic, over 200,000 Californians moved to Texas. That was the number one destination. Number two was Arizona with 157,000 Californians moving there. And number three was Nevada with 138,000. There's a San Francisco Chronicle article that goes way deep into the weeds on this, and I'll put a link in the show notes. But long story short, half of the top 10 states they're heading to are red states. And I'm I'm not arguing for any political point of view, but in general, these people are likely going to vote, well, a lot like the dumb shits in my town. And I, I realize I'm jumping around a bit here, but I do think to some degree... As goes Portland, so goes a lot of the country, and that's why I share this stuff with you. Now, for those of you safely in a small town in North Dakota, well, hopefully you'll find the absurdity of my town entertaining. But for those of you in Prescott, Arizona or Austin, Texas, this is a lot closer to a glimpse into your future, whether you like it or not. Um, So there's your Portland update for the week. Uh, One final note, Bitcoin is in the toilet. I'm recording this on Sunday, May 8th, and we're sitting well under 35K. And if you've been listening to this podcast, I've been buying Bitcoin for around a year, and I'm definitely underwater at this point, but I'm not worried, not in the slightest. My XRP holdings are also seriously in the toilet. I mean, like most of them are down 50%. The rest of my altcoins, well, uh, I sold those last month to pay my IRS bill. Uh, Did I mention this before? I can't remember. Well, I'm on year two of converting my solo 401k into a Roth. And and by the way, that's year two out of four. And that's been a very expensive process. And uh, when I got the eye-popping balance due for my accountant in the beginning of April, I sold off pretty much all of my altcoins to manage that, but I didn't move any of my Bitcoin. Uh, And, you know, last year when I was selling my Arizona mobile home, you know, I was in such a hurry to get things sold so I could buy Bitcoin because, well, you know, everyone last fall was saying that $100,000 Bitcoin was going to be happening by the end of 2021. So I was in a panic to acquire and acquire I did, but you can't time the market. So anyway, this crab walking slowly downward winter and spring actually has been a gift. And I'm in the process of selling, uh, as I mentioned, one of my Ohio properties, and hopefully that's going to close soon so I can throw some more in. Long story short, even though Bitcoin is sucking right now, my long-term sentiment has not changed. 
you know, um, oh, and go go find the guy who goes by the handle Plan B on Twitter. He's an analyst. He's the guy who brought the the stock to flow model from the commodities uh, into the Bitcoin space. And if you look at his models against the Bitcoin halving schedule, as as you know, the the amount of Bitcoin that gets earned per block gets cut in half every approximately four years. Uh, if you look at his models against the having schedule, well, you're going to see that unless there's an act of God, we're in what you would probably call a generational buying opportunity phase. And I'm not, I'm definitely not advocating that you, you, my friend, go out and buy Bitcoin because, well, it could still drop more and you'd be pissed at me. But if you don't have any yet, please just do me a favor, buy and read the book, The Bitcoin Standard by Saifedean Amos. I've said it before, but if you haven't done it yet, just please do. We're in a very weird time in history. Inflation at 40-year highs, the stock market swinging like crazy, a war, possibly a world war, tampon machines going into boys' bathrooms in Oregon schools, a global famine in the works, energy prices going through the roof, and on and on and on and on. And right now, people who are a lot smarter than I am are saying that it's the lowest risk time to get into Bitcoin in its history. Six months ago, I was saying that everyone should have at least one Bitcoin in their personal treasury. That single Bitcoin in 10 years, based on the people I follow, is going to be worth a million bucks. It's the lowest risk, highest delta trade you can make, in my opinion. But now that it's sitting back below 35 grand, I'd say get yourself three or four. The outsized potential returns are seriously just crazy. Kathy Woods, head of ARK Invest, says that she thinks Bitcoin is going to be worth um, a million bucks by 2030. Michael Saylor has said Bitcoin could be worth up to as much as six million. Yes, nobody knows where it's going to end up. And the sideways action is frightening. But again, it represents an opportunity for asymmetrical returns that we may never see again in our lifetimes. So anyway, just read the Bitcoin standard, please. And then send me a message and tell me what you got out of it. If you learned anything and if you're converted, that's all I ask. The Bitcoin standard. Okay, that's it for now. Uh, have a great week and I will talk to you in a couple of days. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com.